Sometimes when people choose a church, a friend of mine told me years ago, and I've always loved this line, he goes, people go to church with people who like to go to church. I mean, you can't imagine somebody saying, hey, um, you know, can I go to church with you? Do, do you like your church? No, nah, I hate my church, but come with me if you want. I mean, you just, you wouldn't invite a person. And so when people say, well, why do you like your church? Oh man, the worship. Woo, it's the best. Or um, they might say, which I've heard a lot around here. It's like, man, I go there because uh, my kids from uh, skills camp to upward to Awana to weekend, they just get discipled. They, they have this philosophy of partnering with the parents. It's incredible. Or somebody might say, yeah, my kid hated church until they started going here. And it's like, they love this place. And my husband, whatever the case may be, um, could be, you know, preaching. The, the guy preaches okay. I put up with it because the worship is great. Whatever the case may be. I got to tell you, I have no idea how the church in Corinth grew. I don't. Because they had this marquee on the outside of their, you know, you've seen those marquees where they put cutesy things out there for churches. On the outside of the marquee of the Corinth church, this is what it read. Warning, communion can be hazardous to your health. (laughs) And so it probably went something like this. Hey, do you go to church? Is that right? He goes, yeah. Where, where do you go to church? Uh, First Baptist in Corinth. Is that the church where people are dying? Oh, yeah. During communion. Every communion. We have a stretcher in the back. I mean, it's like periodically we just wheel somebody out. I don't know how they grew. I don't know how people got excited about it. Because that's what was going on. Look at verse 30 with me. Paul is writing to these folks and he says in the very beginning of this, I have no directives that I can praise you. In other words, you guys are laying an egg when it comes to the issue of communion. Why? Well, look at verse 30. He says, that is why many among you are weak, sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a polite way to say a number of you have died. Now ask yourself a question. Number one, how does a church grow when people are dying just by taking communion? And I can imagine that there might be fewer people taking communion today than normal. What's happening? And why would God be so upset with a group of people that literally people are sick and some are dying? It's a serious issue. All joking aside of the marquee, this church had a problem. And I'm not sure that they're alone. And as Paul is writing to them, his concern is not necessarily to prevent death. Of course he wants to do that. His concern is, do you understand what this table is about and why Christ asks us to do it regularly? And what's so serious about it that there would be people who would literally keel over, some who would be sick because of it. And so he teaches them. For what I receive from the Lord, I want to also pass on to you, he says in verse 23. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. In other words, 
Christ teaches us that it is Christ's body that has created the body of Christ. The only reason we're here together, Jesus says, is because I gave you my body. I allowed my body to be broken. Why do you go to church? I love the worship. Love the preaching. Love our student ministries. Those are all valid. But none of that really has any significant impact as to why are we here. Think with me for a moment. I don't know if you ever do this, but periodically I do. What if Jesus were not real and the story of Christ had not changed my life? The likelihood is that I wouldn't know any of you. I wouldn't be married to my wife. We met in church. I was her Sunday school teacher. I assigned her to marry me as a part of the class. (laughs) It's the only way she'd say yes. (laughs) Somebody was there when it happened. (laughs) None of us would know each other. Oh, if you're related, okay. But we wouldn't be here. This, This church wouldn't be here. And for all the good things about any church in our city or around the world... It's really not the worship. It's really not the teaching. It's, it's Christ. Through the life of Christ, this church was formed. And because of the life of Christ, it is sustained. It is nurtured. It is fed. Uh, apart from Jesus, we wouldn't be here. And there's something about this table that Paul wants to remind us that if you don't come to it and you get reminded that Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. It's the entry point into the Christian life. It's the entry point into the church. You you don't come into the church through belief. You come into the church through the invitation of Christ and his body that brings you. And he offers it to you and you receive that gift. But that's the entry point and that's the sustaining point. It's all about Christ. And Paul says if you don't get it, if you don't understand that this table teaches you something, you're likely to go down a path that doesn't have a sustainable continuance to it. And not only that, but it's through Christ that we find this common bond and this value. What's the setting of this evening? It's Thursday night and they're coming together. And as best we understand it, they're eating this meal together. And um, we know for sure the cup is after and we look at other texts. And so quite likely is after they have eaten, Jesus takes the bread. It's common bread. He didn't go to Great Harvest. He didn't go, and it's not special. It's the common everyday bread. And he broke it. And he said to them, this is us. So what were they doing that Paul was so, so deeply frustrated? Well, it's probably something like this. In the afternoon, they had this, what they call a love feast. That's what they titled it. 
And when they had the love feast, they would come together. And sometimes people would show up early. Who would show up early? It's probably business owners. It's probably individuals who maybe had a lot of money. It's people that didn't have to work the rest of the day. And they would come eat early and they would start eating. It's kind of like, you know, just a a potluck, right? And so what was happening in this situation is uh, at about 5.30, the workers show up. And when the workers who had to work all day or the folks who had to take care of their cattle at home or had to take care of their sheep, they had to feed them and they they couldn't come until later. And when they came, uh, a lot of the food was gone and all of the wine was gone and they walk into the room and Uncle Jim's over there and everybody else and they're drunk. And, and, and you can imagine maybe a, a conversation like this on the way to church. Dad was telling the kids, he said, you know, the church is so important. Why are we going? Why can't we just eat at home? It's because we need to be together with the body of Christ. We need to be together with this church. They love us and we love them. And so when they walk in at 530 and the kids are hungry and they're kind of anticipating, hey, we get to eat and celebrate the body of Christ. They walk in and there's a couple of folks sitting over on the couch soused and Everyone else is kind of done. And they said, hey, is there anything? Oh, yeah, over there on the table. Uh, Are we going to share in communion? Oh, we already did it. We did it a couple of hours ago. You what? You you had communion two hours ago? Oh, yeah, yeah, take some. Have, you know, have a time with Jesus. You didn't wait for us? And the kids went over and they looked through. And I don't know if you've ever looked at a potluck that's been touched by locusts, but that's kind of what it looked like. And they looked back over at dad and said, dad, there's really nothing left. They started walking back home. And their 13-year-old who doesn't feel like hiding his cynicism, said, boy, dad, sure glad they love us. Paul's point was, you guys disgust me. Church in Corinth, you disgust me because what you're communicating to people are there are the haves and the have-nots. There are the welcomed and there are those who are rejected. There are those who are of the favorable And those that we can get along without. That's why James said in James, the book of James, he said, don't show favoritism. Do not communicate to people that some are more welcome than others. 38 years ago when I started pastoring, I made a decision. I've never broken it and I never will. I have no idea what people give. If you give 100,000 a year, praise God, Jesus knows it. I don't. If you give nothing, Jesus knows it. I don't. I never want to run the risk of ever relating to a person based upon what they give. And by the way, there are some people who want that. They make sure I know what they've given. Because Paul says, if you understand this table, it's common That's why Jesus opened one loaf and he said, we all take from the same loaf. We all all live and are sustained by the same Christ. 
When I was studying back in Boston, um, I didn't grow up in the East, I grew up in the West, and so I wasn't familiar with the East Coast churches, not all of them, but some of them are, are, are still going. Hamilton Congregational Church is one I visited a number of times when I was back there, and they're still having services probably 300 some years. And so when I walked in, I had not been into a church like this, and in the back there were rows and pews like you've probably seen in churches, and then as you moved further up, in the middle there's these boxes, Never been in one of these churches. I looked at the boxes and I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. Is that kind of the early days of nursery? That's where you put the kids? <laughs> kind of loud, but that's they can't go anywhere. And then, you know, you look in there and there's these little pots where they can keep things warm. And so I grabbed myself a historian. It's like, hey, what are these boxes all about? And he said, come over here and take a look at it. And I went over there and there were plaques on them. And they were family boxes. Captain so-and-so, sir so-and-so. And I realized it doesn't take a rocket scientist. It's for the privileged. It's for those who gave more. If you were poor in that church, they'll give you a pew, but you're in the back. But if you give a lot, you get a box. And I thought to myself, you haven't read James recently, have you? And you don't understand communion at all. Because Paul said, never allow anything in the church that elevates one person's value over another. That was his disgust. Why won't you wait for people? If you're hungry, go eat at home. But don't turn communion into a haves and have-nots. Don't turn worship into the privileged and the underprivileged. Don't allow anything in the church which indicates there are some that have greater favor than others. That needs to be absolutely eradicated from your diet, Paul says. Why? Because Christ's body has created the body of Christ. Does that mean that we do it perfectly around here? No, I doubt it. And if you need to help us get better at that, kindly do it, if you would. Because if we understand the bread and the cup and the intention of Jesus and Paul's writing is allow nothing that is contrary to the message of Christ. This is my body which is for you. And he takes a loaf and he hands it and every one of them took out of the same loaf, including Judas. And they ate together. And he said, I died for you. Christ's body has been created by the body of Christ and it is through Christ that we live this common life. He says, moving forward in this text, this cup is the new covenant. It's a continual covenant in my blood. And I want you to do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, and for whenever, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I was pondering this week. I wondered why we get baptized once and we have communion regularly, 
Both of them we call ordinances of the church. If your background comes maybe from a Lutheran Catholic background, you might use the term sacrament. We tend not to use that because we don't want to confuse the idea of where grace comes from. Why, why is it? Now, I know some of you have been baptized a couple of times. When Carrie and I went to, to um, Jerusalem, or Israel, um, uh, there's a number of people. I wasn't planning on getting baptized again. I, I think I've already been baptized twice, maybe three times. I can't remember. Um, and um, I was in one of those churches where you could lose your salvation, and I did it all the time. So I, I needed to continue to get saved, and uh, so I got rebaptized a couple of times. But when I was over there in, in Israel, um, there was a number of people. We tried to keep it a secret that I was a pastor on this trip. I just didn't. I kind of wanted to look at it from the lens of not, and somebody outed me. I won't disclose her name, and. Um, uh, so all of a sudden I became the pastor of these 40 people and I think I baptized 28 people in the Jordan. Um, I got uh, baptismal shoulder injury. It, it's not a sin to be baptized a second time or a third time, but we don't traditionally do it. Communion, we do it over and over and over again. Why? Maybe it's because that the bread is this picture of our ongoing life in Christ. Maybe he chose bread is because that's what they sustained their life with. And he wanted them every time they took the bread is to remember what keeps you alive. What sustains you is this ongoing gift of Christ. We're good in the Christian life of understanding I'm saved by grace. Maybe what we're not as good is that I mature by grace. And I am sustained because what can happen is as we begin this life in grace and then we sin and the spirit of God comes and convicts us and then we think, oh, okay, I got to get my act together. And so we start the spiritual disciplines and we read the Bible more and we pray more and we memorize scripture. All the while we forget, wait a minute, why did you leave grace? Why did you all of a sudden start thinking that to please God, you have to start doing a bunch of behaviors? You see, the bread is a picture. This is my body. It's for you. It's not only the entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not only the entrance into the body of Christ. It's the very sustenance of your life. Every day you, you live because of the grace of God that flows through you. And every day the cup is a reminder of our continual forgiveness. When you preach, when you drink this cup... You will proclaim forever the Lord's death. What's Paul's point? What's the Lord's death? It's his means of forgiveness. It's by his death and resurrection and his gift that you're saved through the shedding of the blood. You see, Christ drank the cup of wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of grace. But the reason why I need to come to this frequently, unlike baptism, is because baptism is a point in time. I died with Christ. I was raised with Christ. But this is about continuance. This is about life. This is about forgiveness. And here's the important factor. 
is that when you drink of the cup this morning, there's not one person in this room that needs more or less than another of the blood of Christ. You all need the same. But sometimes I think there's a lie that can kind of get into our lives. And the lie is very subtle. It's really subtle. But it goes something like this. All people are created equal. Just some people need more of the blood of Christ because their sins are greater. Because we have some measurement of sin in our own categories where some people, oh, you did that? You did what? And sometimes the church is like the average prison system where they have a category for sins as to which one is worse. Some friends of ours years ago, this family by all standards were perfect. They looked perfect. They dressed perfect. Their kids were perfect. They sat in church perfect. Their life got disrupted when sin became well known in the husband's life. And the wife wanted him dead. She, she really did. She wanted him annihilated in front of the church and humiliated. And the fact that I wouldn't join her in her disgust of her husband, she was furious with me. I think there's a lot of people, sometimes I see it in broken relationships, adultery, addictions. We all categorically will say we're sinners, but when it gets right down to it, some of us have a list that some sins need more of the blood of Jesus. And we understand that because some sins, we just have a more difficult time forgiving. I can forgive this, I can forgive this, I can forgive, but this one, this is gonna be hard. And what you're really saying is that you need a gallon of the blood of Jesus. I only need a couple of droplets. And Paul says, if you think that way, and that's the whole process of examination. Have you ever been lulled into the idea that some people need more of the grace of Christ than you? Or reverse you need more of the grace of Christ than somebody else. I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, pastor, no, I could never do this. God will never forgive me. Really? You actually think that your sin is greater than the power of Christ's blood. How arrogant and how wrong. We in our culture um, don't drink from the same cup. Let's just say people think that's weird. Um, I, I didn't have a problem with it. When my kids were drinking something that I wanted, I drank their cup. <laughs> I had no problem. Um, Annie has a bigger cup than I do, and sometimes she doesn't drink enough water. My cup, for whatever reason, is small. It's my own choosing. It's a dumb cup that I chose. I think I'm going to get rid of it. And so by the time I'm done, and I like to drink water, <laughs> I almost stopped it. I like to drink. And I know where your head's going to go. 
and I'll just drink. And Carrie's like, oh, that's, no, that's disgusting. That's like, honey, and, and I'll drink out of her cup. And I said, honey, you want to drink out of my cup? No, I can't do that. I said, well, we kiss each other and exchange saliva. <laughs> and I know he's like, yeah, that's just so disgusting. Well, you do it too. But the idea of, of drinking, now this evening, they all had one cup. I didn't grow up Catholic. Um, and so when I got invited to speak at a Catholic church at a mass, I was really excited and I went for the first time. But I was like a pagan in a Baptist church service. I was just like looking around like, well, what do they do here? And I didn't know. And so I was watching people. And so we went through the whole thing. And, and uh, they told me in advance, we, uh, we will allow you. And this is a really gracious thing to, to take communion with us. That's a big thing. And so I walked down. I'd never taken communion in the Catholic church. I didn't know what you did. And I walked down there and I was watching the people in front of me. And uh, the, the priest laid uh, this silver dollar wafer on your tongue that about gagged me. Um, and then afterwards, I started watching people. I was like, whoa, one cup? We're not used to that. But that night they were. And in that sense, I really appreciate the Catholic Church. In that sense. That the picture that they personify, we're not going to do it today and you're just going to have to work on this one. But the picture, I think, is really beautiful. We all drink from the same cup. Now, hygiene-wise, kind of like the health issues, that would just freak us out. And after COVID, we'll never do that. But they did that that night. And Peter, hot-headed Peter, and loving John and James, Matthew, Jesus passed this cup around and not one of them thought, you need more of the blood of Jesus than I do. When my friend came to me one time, the one that wanted her husband destroyed she comes into the office and she goes pastor I don't think I'm saved and I was like here we go you want more people out of heaven than I do why she explained her rationale for the first time in her life I actually think she was being honest about the fact that she was a sinner in need of God's grace for the first time And I said something to her that probably doesn't seem very pastoral, but it was the truth. I said to her, you know, this is the first time that I've actually liked being with you. It's hard to be with somebody who's perfect. It's hard to be with somebody who needs only a droplet of the blood of Christ and I need a gallon. You've been married to some of those people, haven't you? It's hard to be married to somebody perfect. It's hard to be married to a person who lives in a variety of ways communicating to you that you're a worse sinner than they are. 
And when Paul says examine yourself, that's what he's asking you to examine. Not have you sinned. Everyone has sinned. Are you kidding me? The question is, do you understand the body of Christ? Do you understand the blood of Christ? Do you understand that we all come through the body of Christ? That's the entry point. And do you understand that we all live and continue under the covenant of Christ? No one's more or less. And any belief system where you elevate yourself or actually devalue yourself under other people is a lie. And so Paul says, I want you to live that out in human history. How do you do that? Number one, he says, waiting is one great way to put a dagger into the heart of selfishness. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's what he tells us in verse 33. So then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Why? Because I'm not about to communicate to you that you aren't worth waiting for. I'm not about to communicate to you that I have a special inside deserved track of grace with Christ. What does it look like? It can look like a lot of things. We all take communion together and, and, and we do wait. I, I think it's small. I understand really, really small, but it's not, you don't take communion in the second. You get the cup. You, you wait for the rest of the body of Christ. We do it together. When I came, I told our deacons, I said, now, we're never going to take a decision to the, to the congregation that we're split on. We just won't do that. If God can't unite 12 men, how am I ever going to expect that he will unite 1,500? Why would I ever expect that? I can remember over the years, a couple of times, somebody would say, you know, I really can't vote for this, but I'll abstain. And I remember one time saying to this dear brother, no, uh-uh, you aren't abstaining. We're waiting. We're, we're going to take a break. We're going to pray for a month. And if it takes two months, if it takes three months, we're going to wait. Why? Because I trusted you that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're on this team. And I trust you now. And I'm not about to say that I've got a marquee on the Holy Spirit against you. I'll wait until either you join the 11 or the 11 join you. Paul said, one of the ways that you can express value is your willingness to move at the speed of church. Not everyone can show up at three o'clock for the love feast. Some people have to take care of the cattle. And so if you love them and if you care for them and they really are a part of the body of Christ, wait for them, value them, esteem them. Secondly, I think intentional inclusion is a wonderful way to affirm another's values. I've shared it before and I'll tell you again. When I was a junior high teacher, I discovered that the most frightening period of the day was lunch. When students would walk in and, and, and sit at a table and wonder if they're going to sit alone. And it's frightening to sit alone. It's frightening to have no one choose you. And you would be amazed, utterly amazed... At the power you have in a person's life by just calling them up and saying, hey, we're going golfing, would you join us? 
I'm going to go down to Riverfront and I'm going to walk every Friday. I have Fridays off and I'm going to walk every Friday. And I'd love it if you would join me. Maybe we can do lunch afterwards. You, you want me to come? Yeah. Hey, we're starting a, a new Bible study at our house. And I know you live just a few blocks away. Uh, would, you, would you like to come and join? Now, I know some of you are thinking, no, no one's ever called me. Get out of that. Your life is precious and it matters and the Holy Spirit is in you. You be the one that says, you know what? I have the power to invite another person into my life. And you would be amazed. You can change a person's life by the simple thing of saying you matter to me. Would you join us? Hey, you're sitting at a table by yourself. Don't do that. Oh, that table is full. No, it's not. If you're sitting alone, this table isn't full. If you don't have anybody sitting over there, no, no, no. We're not going to lie. Uh-uh. You're part of us. Inclusion. Because there's nothing more powerful than believing that we all eat from the same bread. We all drink from the same cup. We all walk with the same savior. And therefore, I will wait for you. I will slow my life down because you matter to me that much. And I will look for ways of including people that seem to be maybe out on the edge. Yes, I fully understand. There are some people who choose edge living because that's where they like to live. But if they choose to be out there, they're going to have to overcome my invitation. Because when I feel invited and I belong, it is there that I experience the fullness of the body of Christ. The manner of approach to communion must be self-examination. It's not, are you a sinner? Yes, you are. We all know that. Is that when you come to church, do you understand that you're coming into a place where Christ and life with Christ has you intimately connected to everyone else in this room? And do you carry the weight of that and the privilege of that? This one young lady in a church, she admitted herself to a psych ward. She was struggling with life a lot. And her pastor began to visit her. And one day he asked her, said, you know, would you like me to bring communion to you? And she said, I'd love that. Would you be willing to serve some of my friends with me? Absolutely, just tell me how many. So she told him, there will be six of us tomorrow. So the pastor came and he was prepared for six people and there were six there and they shared in communion and he gave them the bread and he gave them the cup and they shared with each other. And afterwards, one young lady said, this is the most meaningful communion I've ever been a part of. Kind of shocked, the pastor said, why? She said, because there's no mask in this place. No one's trying to pretend that they have it all together. We're a mess. But with these six friends, I don't feel judgment. I feel their support. And it makes communion 
especially loving and kind. I'd like to turn our church into a psych ward (laughs) where the masks are taken off and we freely admit I am in desperate need of the grace of Christ like you. And I am just privileged and honored that I get to live out this Christian life with people just like you. That I get to be known by you and I get to know you. Not perfect, just objects of grace. And when you take communion with people like that, it becomes a holy, holy moment.